So, we, we, we started already in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, looking at that, and we found, as Paul was greeting uh, his young men, mentee, uh, he was sharing some very strong words already in the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We heard very, very early on that God has saved us and then conscripted us. He's in, enrolled us in, into a certain kind of work. And that kind of work is that we might bring forth true children in the faith. So immediately Paul says, listen, we have been saved by grace, mercy, and love for the purpose to bring about, Timothy, what we see in you, true, a true child in the faith. So from the get-go, speaking to the church, Missio Dei Church, whatever your home church is, wherever it is, that God has called you as a Christian into the work of bringing people into true faith. And then he moves on into the next section where uh, he's, Paul is saying, listen, I, I want to give you a charge. And this is a, a strong word. I, I need to call you into a, a work. And he says that the aim of this charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so the proper use of God's law, because we talks about the law in this section, is not just about guilt. It's not just about do this, do that, do this. It is for the purpose to bring conviction of sin so that what people are driven to the gospel the good news of jesus christ because keeping the law is hopeless trying to keep it to the t perfection is absolutely impossible so the purpose of looking into the law is seeing your sins and being convicted of it and driven to the good news of jesus christ last week we, we looked at the next section where Paul said, listen, I am the chief of all sinners. The guy who has written the vast majority of the, the New Testament, the, the guy that we, we look at his literature in the Bible and we go, oh man, he, he has arrived. He is sharp. He, is, he knows Jesus Christ. In fact, he had this amazing encounter on the Damascus Road. And so I, I want to be like Paul. But Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. And Paul is constantly reminded of God's abundant grace. God's abundant grace. And that's a call to the church too, that ah, we have got to remember God's grace on a daily basis. Not just that one time where we recognize the grace that was given to us, but constantly. Ah, God's abundant grace for me yet this morning. And then its effects on how then I do ministry. So read with me, starting at verse 18 of chapter 1. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among them whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, as we look at this section, I, I thought it, you know, if you know me well enough, you know that um, 
I, I know really nothing about football, athletics. You know, my wife, sadly, this is where I give up my man card publicly. My wife can tell you stats and facts about the Packers, and we pray for her soul regularly. But um, she, she knows this stuff. Like, she's passionate. It's, this, it's in her DNA. For some reason, this Wisconsin gene goes deep. And she knows this stuff, and she knows facts. And when this happened, or who did this, or who was that coach, I, I don't care. I really don't. Today, I just pray that our house is in one piece after the football party. Um, so I thought, okay, how, how, do I, how do I regain my masculinity? Um, knowing that my wife knows more about football. So I, I did a little bit of research around this subject, and I found a story about... Uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks. Dr. Howard Hendricks is a, an amazing pastor, a theologian, and he recalls one time when uh, the up-and-coming uh, Oklahoma Sooners were, were big on the collegiate scene. And um, Bud Wilkinson was the coach at that time, and it was one of those press co- conferences, probably, you know, with the scenery, with the Bud Light kind of uh, background and with all the, the microphones up in front. And this young reporter asked him this question. Coach Wilkinson, tell us what contribution collegiate football has made towards physical fitness in America. Great question, you know. And um, physical fitness, you know, look at some of those guys. You know, I think back the refrigerator, Perry, you know, back then, physical fitness, not sure, but he was a wall. And you look at some of these guys out there, I'm sure they, you know, they work hard. But this is, this is what his... His reply was, and he was, you could tell, according to Dr. Hendrickson, uh, Dr. Hendricks, that he was kind of shocked by the reply that the coach said. He said, I don't believe that football has made any contribution to physical fitness in America. Well, what do you mean? Said the reporter. And the coach said this, I define football as 22 men on the field desperately needing rest and 50,000 people in the stands desperately needing exercise (laughs) and Dr. Hendricks was quoted concluded by saying this what a description of the local church 22 people on the field working their tail off in dire need of rest. And the pressures, you know, all around, the screaming crowd, yelling at go, go, you know, and the pressure that's on them, and they just need some rest. You see these guys, you know, getting all their oxygen masks on because they've been running. Part of it is because they're so fat they can't run anymore, and they just need a little bit of extra oxygen. And then there's the crowds out there just going wild, and they're... They're not engaged really on the game that is on the field. And I, sadly, I, I think that Christianity in America is often a spectator sport. Often people go to church on Sunday and they sit around and they watch the pros perform. After all, that's what they're paid to do. You know, I, I've even gotten that kind of thing. Well, Paul, that's what you're supposed to do. Suck it up, man. You're the pro. I never get the word pro, but you, you get that. It's that mentality that you're the pro. Get to work. Get to work. 
giddy up. That's your job. And you get the excuse, but you know, that, that can't be me. I, I'm just a regular lay person. I'm just a regular church tender. And, but here's the thing. In the Bible, there's no such animal. There's no such thing as just a, well, hey, I'm just a church tender. I'm just a this. I'm a just a that. In the New Testament, there's no special class of persons called ministers or clergy, clergymen or priests. Rather, every believer in Jesus Christ is a minister or a priest before God. Every person. You call yourself a Christian. You call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. You have a special responsibility. A God-given ministry to fulfill. Every person in this room who claims the name of Jesus, claims the work that he has done in your life, has a special God-given ministry to fulfill. Every person here, without exception. I don't care where you are in your, your Christian walk. You're to be on the field with God's special ministry. And, and I just really want to emphasize this point because I think that we as a whole have been so indoctrinated to this faulty viewpoint that it's difficult to make a shift. In fact, if, I, if somebody new would come into our church and just say, so, so who, who, who's your minister? Immediately people would say, Paul Vroom. Paul, Paul's, Paul's our minister. As flattered as I am and, and grateful for my responsibility within the family, I think that we miss something. By saying, oh, who's your minister? Paul. Paul's the guy that you go to. If ministry needs to be done, you turn to him. Oh, there's a couple other people who might do children's ministry or hospitality or lead worship. But re- really, it's, it's him. If you're asking who it is that we, we as a church support so that he can devote full-time uh, devotion to the teaching of Scripture and to shepherding the flock, sure, the answer is Paul Vroom, and I do it, and I love my job. But your response needs to be, he is just one of the many who minister to this family. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to confront some false teachers who were leading the people astray. And there wasn't, this was not a fun assignment at all for Paul or for Timothy. Especially for someone like Timothy, who had a very timid disposition. He was shy. He didn't like conflict. He didn't like any of that stuff. So more than likely, Timothy was very... Uh, prone to, tempted to, look for a very peaceful solution. And so Paul, in this, through this first section that we've seen in Scripture, Paul is confronting lots of problems. In verse 3, you see, listen, here, here's the problem. I want you to stay back and charge certain people not to teach different doctrine. That, that, that's my charge. There's some problems. And then he reminds Timothy of the gospel that he's supposed to, supposed to be preaching in verse 11. In accordance to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I am entrusted. And Paul also reminds Timothy again and again of the life-changing power that the gospel that Paul has experienced. 
And we see this in 12 through 17 of Paul just retelling his story. I used to be a blasphemer. I used to be this. I used to be that. I used to be this. And you know what? I had an encounter with Jesus Christ and I'm changed completely, completely. I am no longer that man. I'm a new creation, brand new. There's something new about me. So in our text this morning, 18 through 20, he returns to his task of urging and reminding and pushing and prompting Timothy to hang in there. Just hang in there in ministry to the ministry that God has called him. In these verses, if we, these short few verses, I see at least seven principles that apply to absolutely all believers. Every believer that is here. Because every Christian is called to ministry. And these are not the only principles that we need to know. Nor are they even the most basic. But if, but you won't survive as a Christian in your service. And hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Without these principles. So to serve Jesus Christ faithfully. As a church, as a believer in Jesus Christ. We have got to understand these basic, simple principles of ministry. First, rule number one, principle number one. The ministry is a sacred trust that needs to be obeyed. The ministry that you have, that I have, is a sacred trust that's been given to us that needs to be obeyed. There's obedience that is part of this. Paul says in verse 18, this charge, it's the same word used in verses 3 and verse 5, and it refers to a command, a command to promote sound doctrine by confronting certain false teachers and their doctrine. If you look in the Greek, it is a military word that means an order passed through rank from superior to subordinate. Paul received these orders from the Lord, and he has passed them on to Timothy. And Timothy is to do what? Pass them on to the church. The word conveys just a real sense of of obligation. Donald Guthrie, uh, a commentator, said this. Timothy is solemnly reminded that the ministry is not a matter to be trifled with, but an order from the commander-in-chief. So the ministry that you have from Jesus Christ as a redeemed, a saved person is not just something that you go, eh, well, whatever. I'll get around to it. This is, your ministry is a sacred trust from the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the one who created the entire creation with a word. This ministry that he's given you is not something that you go, eh, I'll get to it. This is a command from God that is to be obeyed. Paul reminds him that he, and he entrusts this command to Timothy saying, listen, hey, here's the command from God. What are you going to do with it? You are to entrust it to others. This word entrusting talks about something valuable being given to somebody for safekeeping. You receive something for safekeeping. And it's used when you talk about making a deposit in a bank. It's also used 
about entrusting a loved one to another's care. And it always implies, it always implies that a trust has been placed in someone for which he or she will have to give an account for. So God has entrusted you with a ministry. I don't care where you are in life. He has given you a ministry. And at some point in your life, he will say, what have you done with the ministry I've entrusted? What have you done with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? With your gifts, your talents, your passion, what have you done with it? And the lesson for us is this, that ministry is not just this optional choice for the more dedicated folks in the church. It's not just for those who who have more spare time. Well, you know, in their season of life, they don't have kids. So, you know what, they have more time. Or what about those, that that person is a, a single person, you know, so obviously they don't have a spouse, and they obviously don't have kids, and they, they got a job 40 hours, but you know what, they can go above and beyond. It's not just for those people who have more time. It is for all of us. Every one of us. God does not call for volunteers who want to give up of their free time. He says, listen, I want your all. The ministry is a sacred trust from God to each individual for which each person must obey and for which that person must give an account. If God has called you to himself, if he has saved you, through his son, Jesus Christ, then he has called you to serve. And it's not an optional service. And his particular orders to you as to how and where he wants you to serve must be seen as a sacred deposit entrusted to you by the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Commander-in-Chief. And we do this ministry to please him. Not for the pats on the backs or the encouragement or the kudos. We serve because of the grace that has been given to us. And it's a work of worship, a work of gratitude. Now, this ministry to people is about building into the lives of people who then, in turn, build into the lives of others. And that's, that's our second rule, is that this principle is that ministry, the ministry that we do together is about people building into people who therefore build into other people. Who, in turn, do what? Build into other people. It is this ongoing work. And we can see this principle more specifically if you want to look in 2 Timothy 2, verses 2 where Paul used the same word of entrust. And the principle is that Paul entrusted certain things to Timothy, and Timothy was then to entrust them to others. And the others were to entrust it to others. And so it's this, this ongoing from one generation to another generation to another generation, from one person to another person to another person. Parents, if you're a parent, your, one of your primary responsibilities is you have been entrusted with a ministry of parenting. 
And what do you do with that? You entrust it to your children. Your hard work when you go home is to, every word is just heavy with the gospel. Your, your works and your actions are just heavy with grace and mercy and love. And you are constantly talking about Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, what he's doing in your marriage, what he's doing at work and your children see and learn. And so that someday when they have children, it is passed on from generation to generation to generation. But it's not just about people who have kids. We call ourselves a family. That's what a church is. It is the family of God, the people of God. We entrust the same good news to each other. And those who are not yet part of this family. We share that good news on and on. It is a process of multiplication where a more mature Christian imparts life, the life of Christ, to another one who is younger in the faith. Not younger in age, younger in the faith. So that that person can mature and grow up in Christ and then repeat that process. We see it in 1 Timothy 1.18 where we see Paul involved in this process and he calls him my child. My true child in the faith. And it is deeply affectionate. Paul loves Timothy. There is a man crush going on. Some man love going on here. Paul says, you're not my biological child at all. I love you. You are my child, my son in Christ. And I love you deeply. Timothy, this is to be repeated. You do this in the church. Entrust it to other faithful people. And encourage them this multiplication process. And it is this ministry that we do, of building into the lives, is always in the context of warm, personal relationships. And many people, when they think about the church of Jesus Christ, they don't think of warm, personal relationships. When I grew up, I thought of cold pews. Where you sat silently, and there was no running in the fellowship hall. You know what I'm talking about? You do, and you got the look across. You got the pinch, the church pinch right here. And it was, we, this is who we are. We don't do that. We don't move. We don't talk. We don't, we don't giggle. We don't. And there was a hierarchy of who did what and how these things were done. But ministry is always done in the context of warm, personal, one-to-one, many-on-many kind of life-on-life kind of relationships. And what often happens in the local church is that ministry becomes institutionalized instead of personalized. One of the things I'm always scared of is I hear people and say, so what is your process for uh, discipleship? What is your process for uh, growing men, growing women, growing your church up in Christ? What what, What is your process? If you grew up in my time, you grew up in the Rick Warren time. With Saddleback, first thing that you do is you, you get the f- to first base, and then you go to second base, and then you go to third base, and then you hit your home run, and you send people out into mission, and then you're done. Th- there's this process. You take this class, you take this class, this class, this class, this class, and then you're done. You don't ever have to take a class again. Bada bing, bada boom. But life in the church, ministry is to be 
richly personalized. There is not one person who is wired like me. Thanks be to God. None of you are like me. And no one is like my wife. No one is like Andy. No one is like anybody else in here. And we all need to know each other deeply and personally because the way that we need to learn and grow in Jesus Christ is personal. Very personal. We need one-on-one relationships. We need small group relationships. We need big group relationships. We need all those kind of things to grow deeply in Christ. But our fear is like we need to institutionalize this. And I think it's, it's possible to keep the institution rolling on and on and keep it going along, but to miss the heart of the ministry, which is building into the lives of people. If I would ask you and go around person to person right now, which would make it really awkward, but it would get the point across, who is it that you are investing in? And I'd start with Candace. And just say, Candace, I don't care if that person is in here. Who is it that you're being intentional in investing in their lives? Go. Kyle. Some of you are going, please don't do this. Because I have no clue. But Paul is saying, listen, the ministry is about that you are called to, not just the paid professional. The ministry that we are all called to is about building into people's lives. So that we can say, that's my child in faith. I, have, I know him or her in such a way that it's deep and personal and beautiful. So ministry is about, is a person being so full of Jesus Christ and that it just naturally kind of slops over. It just flows over into other people's life where it builds them up. And it's done in the context of caring, loving relationships. And let me say this one more piece about this caring, loving relationship. If you are waiting to be invested in, or to have, those, have that context of warm, loving relationships, and you're sitting on the sidelines waiting for it, you're already removing yourself from the body of Christ. Already removing yourself. Connectivity requires two ways. You want to grow in Christ. You want to grow in relationship. You want to become a part of the body of Christ. It requires you both. Yeah, probably a lot more relationship where a person is seeking out a younger in the faith kind of person. But it also requires somebody who's young in the faith saying, I, have, I need to grow. I need to be, know what it means. And so I am going to search out within the church. Who is it that can pour into me? Ask the question, will you pour into me? Will you invest in my life? Because I so want to grow. So, moving on. The third piece, the third principle, is that ministry is in accordance 
with spiritual gifts. The phrase, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, probably is also really connected to uh, chapter 4 in here. And it talks about, uh, Paul says, do not neglect, Timothy, the gifts that you have. Do not neglect them, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This probably refers to God's confirmation of Timothy's spiritual gifts through the recognition of the elders of the church. And if in this sense it means that Timothy was ministering uh, at Ephesus because of his divinely indicated spiritual gifts, it was confirmed. The elders saw something. Timothy was doing something in the family, in the church, in the body. There was something going on. And the elders of the church said, mm, up and coming leader. Look at how he is using his gifts, his talents, his passions for the sake of the kingdom. Look at what he is doing. Now, while not everybody's um, ministry is so dramatically indicated where, you know, all the elders go, oh, lay hands on Brian Scott, oh, you know, it's not all like that where every Sunday you see the elders going, you know, kind of magnet, moving magnetically towards people. There is something that happens in the body. The principle still holds true that ministry should be in accordance with the spiritual given, gifts given to you by God. Whatever your gifts are, God has given each one of us at the point of our spiritual birth, he has given us gifts which equip us for the unique ministries within the body of Christ. He's given each one of you gifts and talents and passions. You can do these things. You can do things far better than I could ever do. Okay, hear that. You can do things far better than I could ever do because God has gifted you uniquely. That is why I am not the body. We are the body. And thank, thank God for that. <laughs> that I am not it. Because we'd only go so far. Based on my gifts, my talents, my passions. In fact, we would probably close our doors very quickly. But the body is to be using its gifts. And you as a member of the body needs to be using your gifts. But I want to put two cautions out there. First, do not sit around waiting for some special revelation from God about your gifts. Because I've seen that where people just say, so where are you getting connected? You know, I'm still discerning where I'm going to be serving. I'm just not sure yet, so I'm going to just kind of sit back and just kind of figure it out. Are you kind of like Monty Python waiting for, you know, the heavens to open up and a great big, you know, trumpet to come out and just say, oh, here's your gift. Now move. Because that's kind of what it seems like sometimes in the body of Christ. We are waiting for the heavens to open up and God to suddenly speak down and just say, here's your gift. Now go. I finally imparted it to you 10 years after you got saved. Now you may move. People hear this. 
Gifts are always revealed in the context of service. Your gifts are always revealed in the context of serving. Always. Timothy was already serving the Lord in Lystra when Paul returned to town. And his gifts were recognized through his service. And in the same way, when Paul had that Damascus Road encounter, immediately what did he do? He moved into service. And he started preaching. In fact, he, he went to his, um, kind of took some time away and went into Arabia kind of for some special training. But he returned and kept on preaching. Kept on doing spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gifts are revealed and recognized in the context of serving. So get involved. Get involved in building the people of Jesus Christ up and your gifts will become obvious. So that's number one. Don't sit around waiting for the the heavens to open up and all of a sudden, you know, angels to come down and speak to you. Number two, don't neglect serving in certain capacities because they aren't your gift. I see that all the time. And I've seen that in my life where it's like, that's not my gift. Good luck. And it's just like, (laughs) kind of that mentality of, screw you. You know, hey, I I hope you do all right over there. Because that's not my gift. I I don't do well with that. We are commanded to do almost every one of the tasks for which there are spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Mercy. I don't have the gift of mercy. So I'm going to tell you what I think. You've seen that in the church, right? The filter comes off and bleh, and they just merciless folks. I don't have the gift of helps. So therefore, I cannot take down chairs. I, I'm sorry. Now, if you've got a bad back like me, I can understand. But by gum, get a brace. You know, just because you, you don't, Maybe you're wired to be a teacher. You love doing this. That does not excuse you from helping those who need help in other areas. So when we have calls for the, the road crew, and people say, well, that's, that's really, I, I, have no, I have no idea of how to set up all this kind of stuff, and it kind of freaks me out. Come on now. Is, is the real issue you don't want to get your butt out of bed? And serve and sweat a little bit? Is it laziness? Is it a lack of care for the body? What is it? What really is at the heart? But here's the thing. Having said that, as your gift emerges, you see what your spiritual gift is. It should define your primary focus for your ministry. Your laser beam, if you love children and teaching children, with laser beam focus, minister there. Put your energy in there, but do not have tunnel vision. Just say, well, that's all I can do. Serve. Serve in different capacities. And when there are needs, address them. 
And don't wait. Address them. The next one. Number four. The ministry is a long fight. Not a short picnic. When you think of picnics, it all depends on your context and your history. It's like just this real pleasurable kind of thing. My wife and I love going down to, uh, I forget what it's called, the, the bean down there, you know, where they got all the orchestra stuff. And we'll take our wine, our cheese, our buffalo wild wings. It's just this really nice ambiance. You listen to the music kind of flowing out of the band shell. It's just really beautiful and wonderful. And the kids are kind of playing around. And we get this kind of mentality that that is what ministry is supposed to be like. You're, you're eating your wine and your cheese and your buffalo wild wings, whatever it is you might want. I don't know what you do. But for us, our family, that's what it is. We do those kind of things. And we sit back and we watch our kids play. And there's jumpies over there. And the kids are playing over there. And they're getting hot and sweaty, but they're having a blast. That's all what ministry is supposed to be like, right? Where it's just this really wonderful playland. But in reality, ministry is a long fight. And Paul doesn't say, hey, Play the good Sunday school picnic or enjoy the ride. But instead he says, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Ministry is spiritual warfare. Really. Get involved. And you will see, ministry is spiritual warfare. And the word here just signifies a campaign, not a single battle. A campaign where it's, ongoing, one after the other. Ministry is just daily entering into, having us uh, seeing life as a battlefield where we are going up against not just flesh and blood, because that's not where our battle really is, but it's against all kinds of other things. It is spiritual warfare. It For John Meskis' sake, we'll change the metaphor. It is a marathon race, not just a 100-yard dash. Even for some of us, 100-yard dash sounds exhausting. But our life, our life in ministry is more like a marathon that requires training and working and going and going. And the enemy is trying to trip you and me up trying to get us just to drop out. So to serve the Lord faithfully, you've got to realize that you're in it for the long haul and it it is not going to be easy. How many people honestly have been burned in ministry? I'm surprised that that's it. Some people get all excited about ministry, but they burn out. Others get excited until problems hit, and then they quit. Others bail out when they catch criticism. And let me tell you, you'll catch it. Others expect instant results. Add water, and you have full fruit. And everything will be hunky-dory. And when it doesn't happen, they get discouraged, and they quit. Others are so excited about ministry and they don't get any training and they run dry after a while. All these problems can be solved if people would realize that ministry, which God calls us, each one of us to be, 
a part of is a lifetime campaign against a powerful enemy. And note that Timothy's fight was against men who were where? In the church. Hymenaeus and Alexander were in the church. And that's honestly, sadly enough, where battle is usually raged the most fierce internally. Because Satan knows that this is where our weak spot is. Paul goes on to point out rule number five, that ministry is more dependent on personal integrity than polished technique. Paul just really exhorts Timothy to be to hold the faith and a good conscience. Faith is probably just this broad reference to uh, both doctrine and belief. And Timothy is to hold onto his trust in the truth of the gospel. Hold on to this. What you know about Jesus Christ and what he has done and how he has wired the church for the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he is to walk uprightly in that. He is not to violate his conscience, which is to be shaped by the word of God. Belief and behavior always, 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 always go hand in hand. What you believe and how you work it out always go hand in hand. Here's the deal. God's word is always telling us about the truth. That's why as a church, I want us to walk through in order through whole books. I want us to, to know so we don't skip over and, you know, a lot of times we don't like to address difficult and uh, issues in here because it makes us squirmish. It'd be a lot easier to be peacemakers and just say, oh, we'll get around to that in 2020. You know, we'll really address that issue when it becomes a big issue. The truth of God always tells us the truth about God. And therefore, it not only does that, it tells us the truth about ourselves. And so when we, when we are investigating, walking through Scripture, it forms our conscience. How we think about the world, how we think about our behavior. We hold on to the good news of Jesus Christ, and we allow the Word of God to shape us and form us. That's why we say, get involved in a missional community where people are in your life. And you're investigating the word of God together. Get involved. Because it helps shape the way that you think and then it helps the way that you behave. It's not behavior management. It's allowing the gospel to shape your life so that you reflect what God has originally intended. Our conscience is here to help us know when we are deviating from the truth. The interesting thing about the conscience, though, and hear this, is that it can be taught to lie. Your conscience can be taught to lie. How can it be taught to lie? By being immersed more in the culture than in the word. 
when culture starts to shape or your past history starts to shape how you think about things, that's when your conscience is being conditioned to lie. And that it's kind of a slippery slope, isn't it? Because how many times do we say we have hard discussions about certain things and people say, well, I feel that it's saying this. Or I feel. Or church pastors. How many times have we heard and seen pastors just failing because their conscience is seared? Because they've been conditioning themselves in inappropriate sexual relationships or sexual thoughts or ideas about money and growth and stuff like that. And after a while, their conscience is seared in such a way that it affects what? Their behavior. And their conscience starts to lie to them and say, that's okay, you can do that. That's permissible. That's not really compromising the gospel. H.C. Trumbull my last thing in this area, once said, conscience tells us what we ought to do right, but it does not tell us what is right. We are taught by God's word. We're taught by God's word. So the best method for ministry is to hold on to the faith. Allow your mind, your your lives to be shaped by God's word and listening carefully to his word. Be shaped by it. And the reality is, is if you are not allowing God's word to shape your thinking, shape your worldview, and you're not holding on to the faith, the gospel, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is what we see here. By rejecting this, holding on to the faith and the good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Ministry has casualties. That's the other thing that we've got to remember. Some shipwreck their faith, some go down in battle. And that fact is not new to any of us. If you've been around the church long enough, but it's important to remember. We all have this, we all have a tendency to put our eyes on certain church leaders instead of Jesus Christ himself. We all fix our, a lot of us, and I've done this, I've been guilty of this, I fix my eyes on church models and things like that that seem successful and, oh, look at that. If we could be just like that, if we could have that, if we could do this, Or maybe we could just tweak our doctrine a little this way or do this or think that or apply it this way. What happens after a while is we go down. We shipwreck our faith. And there's casualties. Satan can't cause Jesus Christ to fall, but he can work on leaders in the body of Christ to make us fall. Satan can lull you into thinking that the Christian life and ministry to which you've been called is a Sunday school picnic instead of war, then you'll let your defenses down and he can get to you. 
And here's the reality. Satan shoots real bullets. And I think of the people that I've known through my my short 41 years of life. Of how many people have failed. And they've shipwrecked, their faith is just shipwrecked. They've never made it to the port. They didn't complete the race. They didn't fight the good fight. And it kills me. And that's my fear for some of us here. That this is adequate. This isn't enough. This is enough for my own personal growth. And this is enough for my marriage. This is enough for my relationships. This is enough for, to shape me for the rest of the week. Satan is going, you're right. That's all that you need. Be satisfied in that. If you're a casual attender of this church, he's got you in his sights. And he's satisfied. He has lulled you into a doldrum. While the Christian life is to be marked by passion and love and activity and fighting the good fight. And here's the last thing. Number seven. Ministry involves unpleasant tasks at times. And this is the part that we all love. We are just all wired for conflict management. We love to talk about, you know, hey, can I call you out on that? All right, yeah. Those warm, fuzzy moments. Paul mentions two people by name. By name. He doesn't just say, you know who I'm talking about, those guys. He, he points them out and just says, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And this was a letter that was read to the church in Ephesus. So the whole church, it was like just saying, Brian Scott and Aaron Scott. Them. Those. And maybe Hymenaeus and Alexander are going, whoa. But this is the hard work of ministry. Is that, listen, it's unpleasant at times because what are we doing? We are sinful people by nature, aren't we? And how, how quickly we deviate and we start to skimp. And our vector towards Jesus Christ has just changed one degree. One degree off of Jesus Christ is still off of Jesus Christ. Ten years later, with a one-degree vector change, is way off there. And so the ministry that we are called to is at times, it feels unpleasant, but it's the work of the body to say, I am deeply concerned about what you are teaching, what you are thinking, how your life is doing this or doing that. I'm deeply concerned. And so there is a time where as a church, as leaders and brothers and sisters in Christ, what do we do? We exercise discipline. And none of us like to use the word discipline. But if you as a parent never discipline your children, all hell breaks loose. All hell breaks loose. And it is a disaster. These men were apparently church leaders who were involved in some sort of sin, some kind of violation of the conscience, 
as well as doctrinal errors. And Paul, it says here he did what? I handed them over to Satan. Well, there you go. What does he mean? Paul uses this same expression in in Corinth about a man who was openly committing adultery with his father's wife. Okay, none of that, I pray, is happening here. Because that would be immediate church discipline. Please don't ever let that happen here. But it's, it's easy to look at like those big, oh my gosh, he's sleeping with his dad's gross. That needs to be dealt with. That just seems wrong. But very, what are the things that we need to look, look at? Do we dare ever exercise church discipline or have those hard conversations with, you are gossiping. You are gossiping. You are ruining the image of God. You are talking about that person in such a way that denies that the image of God is in them. Don't ever talk that way about them. That is a child of God. Do we ever dare talk about finances? Probably not, right? Because that's very personal. But yet, God says, listen, everything that I've given to you is given to you as a trust. What are you going to do with the gifts that I have given to you? It's not a question of how much you are going to give. It's a question of how much are you going to keep of God's. It's easy to look at weird adultery things, but what about those other things? To be in the church under the authority of the elders provides a person a certain amount of protection from the devil and his attacks through the word, with the world. And what Paul probably means here is that these two men were delivered over to Satan's domain, the world, by being excommunicated from the protective covering of the church and from the fellowship of the members, which hopefully what it did was saying, listen, until you are repentant. You're not allowed to come to the Lord's Supper. Until you, until you do this, there's a certain distance that we need to push back. And why? Is it because we're the country club? No. The purpose is that it pushes the peop- them away from a certain grace and love so that these people are driven to what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the church starts working hard at sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel, hoping to restore them to full, full membership. It's unpleasant. The goal of any discipline is to restore, not to punish. Paul's desire was not to get rid of these men, but to see them to be taught not to blaspheme. Discipline to one another must be done if people are going to grow in Christ. And if the body of Christ is going to reflect his holiness and love. 
So ministry isn't easy. And if you're not serving the Lord right now, I want to remember you to remember that I'm defining service, this ministry as being so full of Jesus Christ, that is pouring out and into other people's lives and building them up as brothers, sisters in Christ so that they're mature in Christ. And if you're not doing that kind of service, if you are not ministering in that kind of a way, I'd ask you to evaluate whether you are walking closely with Christ. You can't give out what you don't possess. The Lord always calls us to be with Him before He sends us out to serve Him. The other area that I want us to evaluate honestly is, are you too self-focused? If you're so busy doing your own thing that you don't have time to serve the Lord, you're too self-focused. If you're focused on yourself, you won't be looking for opportunities to minister to others. If you're too busy, I'm just too busy being a dad. I'm too busy being a, a salesperson. I'm too busy doing this. I'm too busy for, with my career. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. Then you will never see opportunities to minister. God might not direct you to go to a foreign country. But he does want each of us to live in the reality with him and to get involved in the lives of, the other, of others in this church and with those who do not yet know Jesus Christ with the goal of seeing every person that we know grow in maturity as you are growing in maturity. That is the goal. And as you hear that, my prayer is that you don't walk out of here going guilty and go, man, I suck. I should do more. I need to, and you just kind of walk out and go, all right, I need to create my list of what I need to do. Because that's a dangerous thing too. I hope that hearing this, that as you see the law, as you see where you have failed, that you do what? You run to the gospel and to say, Jesus, again, I've forgotten the grace that has been poured out to me. I've forgotten the blood that was shed on Calvary for me and for my brothers and sisters in Christ and how they, we are co-heirs in Christ. Ah, oh, Jesus, I've forgotten that. Ah, oh, would you warm my heart again to the gospel, to the ministry that you've called me to. And Lord, open my eyes. Transform my thoughts. Transform my mind. Rid me of guilt and shame and propel me to honor you with my whole life. That's your job as a minister, a co-minister in Christ. Let's pray.